years ago leading a mission trip, uh, high school kids to Boston and a large city to take a crew into, kind of a wild city in some ways. We were toward the end of the trip and we had decided to go enjoy ourselves a little bit. The group was going to, um, we were going to go to Hard Rock Cafe that night. And so we went to get on the subway and when we did half the group, uh, got on, I was with the last half of the group. We were going to get on the very next train and no train arrived. Sure enough, we heard the word that someone had thrown himself in front of the train, committing suicide, and it had totally just shut down the train that we were to get on. And all of a sudden, I'm in a dilemma because I have half of my group that's headed somewhere into the city. Uh, there's an adult with them, but there's half of a group headed somewhere into the city, and the other half of the group is with me. Uh, I know it's hard for many of you to imagine, uh, but this is before the days of cell phones. And in the days of uh, cell phones now, I could have called someone. There's no way to do that at that time. And half of my group is there and half is here. And I remember anxiously anticipating uh, us all being together and me knowing that everybody is safe and sound together. Uh, You could say that our union was dissolved for a little bit. And today, that's what we discover, a strategy of the enemy as we continue in this series called Closer Than Close, based on the book by David Higman. If you don't have the book, we have some available. Uh, most of you are going through it in your life groups, but in this book, we, uh, we've got to now push rewind and discover what happened to create such a need for Christ. Like, why is God so into union and what does, did it look like then uh, so that helps us understand what it ought to look like now? Uh, we discover from this two observations and one is Satan's strategy, which is to divide and conquer. And we discover man's response to Satan's strategy and Man's response is to um, desire and blame. Satan divides and conquers. Man desires and blames. And so let's look at Satan's strategy for a little bit. The woman is alone, apparently. And you must keep in mind that the woman did not hear from God the command about the tree That command came from God to Adam, and Adam had the task of communicating it to Eve once she was created. And so Adam's got this task of communicating that you can eat anything in the garden, but there's a tree right in the middle. It isn't for you. Don't eat from that tree. And so so Satan comes and finds the woman, and he, he speaks to her. And says something to her. Um, I want to speak to men who are married for a moment. Before we move on. Your responsibility laid out not only here in Genesis. But all through scripture is to serve as the conduit of God's grace into your marriage. It is your task. And there are many single men in the room this morning. And it is your task, and singles hear me, it is your task as single men that 
That your wife doesn't desperately need some Casanova riding into her life to woo and wow her. She needs a a man who will lead her, who will love her unconditionally and lead her spiritually. Uh, First Peter writes about this when he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So when you're married, you and your wife are together heirs of God's grace you usher that into that relationship in a profound way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Uh, husbands, if you want to have an empty, wasted prayer life, dishonor your wife. This is profound. And so we see this scene kind of unfold and God created Adam and put him in the garden and gave him jurisdiction over all the animals of the garden, including the serpent, by the way. But Satan comes slithering in, embodies the serpent, and when he does, speaks to Eve without Adam being present. Why? Because he divides and conquers. How does that work today? A co-worker hears you talking about your husband and she begins to take sides with you. Parents sometimes struggle with newlyweds, right? In-laws, the problem of in-laws, and so... Maybe you're not as good a cook as your mother-in-law. And so she comes over. You've not been married long and she comes over and you do your best and put it out there. and, And she says, well, that's not really how I cook that. That's not how I do it. And, and, and the husband's like, yeah, mama, yours is better. Well, if that's how you feel, husband, you should have married your mama. I mean, you should have. If it's that important to you, then just stay at home the rest of your life. Um, Parents can be this point of division. Work can be that. A husband or a wife can so buy into his or her work that work becomes an idol of God and it puts a wedge between a husband and a wife. Hobbies and interests, might I say in October, if you're a man, hunting. All right, so hunting is a big deal for men in McDowell County. A lot of you hunt. Nothing wrong with hunting, but some of you feel like this gives you a a checkout, you know, you, you'll see your family again come January, other hobbies. And then Satan will even use Christians to divide you. You say, Jerry, surely not. Uh, let's look into Jesus life for a moment. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Praise the Lord. Amen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, before I move on, um, Jesus has these concentric circles around him of influence and of, of, of people he influences. There's the immediate circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Go out from that, you've got the 12 disciples. Go out from that, you've got the 72 or so he sent out. It's, it, it's interesting that one of the three in the inner circle 
one of the three in the inner circle pulls him aside and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Peter has that terrible distinction of being the only disciple Jesus called Satan. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Believers can be a wedge, a point of division. So how does Satan do it? How does he divide and conquer? He looks at Eve and asks her this question. Did God actually say? That's innuendo. When you say actually, that's innuendo. What is innuendo? Let me explain. Uh, Listen closely. A captain of a ship wrote a ship made up again and again for getting drunk. Again and again. Uh, The shipmate wanted revenge. On his own report of the happenings on the ship, ship, he simply wrote, Captain Sober Today. Suggesting that every other day the captain is drunk. That's innuendo. Uh, What does innuendo do? Innuendo sows doubt where there should be faith. Innuendo says to God, actually say, or I'm not sure this really applies to you. Uh, It's innuendo is the seed that is sown and the plant that grows is called doubt. If these seeds grow up, uh, doubt sprouts, but Satan doesn't stay there. He looks at her and says, you will not surely die. Satan, once he has sown the seeds of innuendo and the plants of doubt grow, douses them with the miracle grow of lies. He then comes in with blatant all out lies. It is then at that moment that you'll believe what it is he says. Before then, you won't. He knows that. So can I plant some doubt? And if I can plant some doubt and it grows up and I can uh, fertilize the doubt with lies, I've done something Satan thinks. And he says, you will not surely die. Uh, The destruction of faith is gradual. It doesn't disappear over uh, uh, immediately. Faith erodes. That's important to remember. Your faith erodes over time. Would Adam and Eve know good and evil? Yes. Would they be like God? They already were. This is no newsflash. They're created in the image of God. They would know good and evil, but not be able to remove themselves from the dangers of knowing good and evil. Satan divides and conquers. How does man respond? Desire and blame. And when she saw that it was good for food, isn't that crazy? There's a whole garden full of all kinds of food. Like it's got everything imaginable. And it doesn't rot. This is the Garden of Eden. This is impeccable fruit. 
wonderful vegetables. There are no weeds. It grows. All you have to do is go pick it. You, you enjoy all of this fruit and she sees one tree and she desires it. It's good for food, she says. It's like driving down Patton Avenue and you had no plan to eat a donut until you saw the hot sign. And you see it and there's something in your car that goes... Like you just want to go across the median and, and, and get over to the Krispy Kreme so those things can melt in your mouth. Years ago, Roy Denny, some of you may know Roy. Roy and I drove to Greenville. We went to Greenville, South Carolina to, be, to, to celebrate somebody really going through a, 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 an addiction program, a Christian addiction program. And we were there to celebrate that. And so Roy just rode down with me. I was discipling him. It was some good opportunity in the, in the car. Well, we finished and we celebrated and we decided that we would get some donuts. And the hot sign was on. And so we go to Krispy Kreme and we get donuts. We get a whole dozen and we, our wives are back home. And we said, you know, they'll love it. Do you know how many donuts our wives ended up with? I did better than that. One. To split between the two of them. No lie. No lie. Like we sat in our car driving home and we would just ate and then we'd eat another and we would have this a twinge of conscience. Then we'd eat again. And by the time we got home, I still remember walking in with this big box to Wendy and, and Melissa, and here's this one donut for the two of you. It was um, good for food, a delight to the eyes, a desire to make one wise. That's what Eve saw, and she saw it, and she ate. First John two sixteen says this. If you want the anatomy of sin, 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. There it is. We see things that we want them, right? The desires of the eyes. We have desires in us that may be like others in the room, but not exactly. I struggle with something you may not struggle with. That's the desires of the flesh. If those desires of the flesh at the right slash wrong time meet with the desires of the eyes and pride is in the mix, we're toast. We're done. We're done. Eve, sounds absurd, idolized a tree. <laughs> That's absurd, isn't it? She idolized a piece of fruit. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says this, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any discretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. 
It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. And all of a sudden, Eve is enslaved, and so is Adam, to a piece of fruit. Then their eyes were opened. So what did they do? They go get fig leaves and they sew them together to cover their nakedness. Innocence is gone and they can't be naked in front of each other without being awkward. And so they sew fig leaves together. About how long do fig leaves stay off a fig tree without withering? Not long enough. So all of a sudden, their attempt to cover their own nakedness begins to unravel. It begins to shrivel. It begins to fall apart. And then they hear something. Verse 8, they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I love God's response. God who could speak through an earthquake. God who could send a tornado. God who could send a torrential tsunami through the garden of Eden does what he does every day. He comes walking. He comes walking into the garden now of sin. And he comes walking into a garden now of deception. And he comes walking into a garden now of devastation. He doesn't avoid the briars. He doesn't avoid the tangled mess, the tangled web of deception. He comes walking in the garden and Adam and Eve think they're hiding. You understand this if you're a parent, don't you? Well, Trent is taller than me. He's only in the eighth grade, but he's 6'1 now. But when Trent was a little kid, Trent did what all you little kids have done. What is it? He would put his hands over his eyes and think that since he couldn't see me, I couldn't what? See him. Oh, it happens all the time, right? If you're a parent, you've seen this, right? You've experienced it. Your kids go, find me, mommy, find me, daddy, right? Why? Because in their eyes, if they can't see you, you can't see them. And so what do you do? Well, you stupid little kid. Is that what you do? No. If you do, we got issues. No. You go, oh, where's Trent? You know, where's Hannah? And you act like you don't know where they are. And then they take the hands off their eyes. And you go, oh, there you are. And you act surprised. What is that called? It's called condescending. Kids, we parents do it all the time. We bring ourselves down to your level so that we can relate. All right, check this. We have two options. This is either the spirit walking through the garden, the spirit of God. So how could they hear the sound of the spirit, the wind, 
or it's Jesus Christ. One of the two. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It's one of the two walking in the garden. And what does Jesus say to his two kids who have the proverbial hand over their eyes? As if God doesn't know, he says, where are you? Why? The same reason he's asking some of you that this morning. So you'll recognize and admit where you are. That's why. That's why that's reverberating through your mind right now. God is condescending, asking a question he knows the answer to. So that you'll say it back to him. That's confession. Adam and Eve weren't there. How do they answer? Adam answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Imagine the very God who breathed into Adam the breath of life, who created the impeccable Garden of Eden, who gave Adam jurisdiction over all of it. Imagine the hurt when he heard that the one in whose body his breath resonated and pulsated was afraid of him. Dave Hickman in his book says, Out of everything God had made, Adam was specifically created to image the infinite life of God. You say, Jerry, how did that happen? Let me push rewind for a moment. Go back to chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So that's how God made Adam. He, he, he breathed into him. If you go to Psalm 32, you'll discover the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together in this creation. The breath of God going into the body of Adam. But think about this. When God decided to make Adam's wife, do you know what he could have done? He could simply have taken another ball of dust, right? Just get another ball of dust. Grab that ball of dust. Shape it into a woman. And so you've got a ball of dust who's a man, breathe into the woman, uh, breathe into the man, a ball of dust who's a woman, breathe into the woman, you have two creatures. He didn't do that. Why? There's something interesting. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God has eternally up until this point enjoyed union with his son and with the spirit. And now when he creates the first family, he's not going to create two dissonant creatures. No, he's going to create man, breathe into Adam the very breath of his spirit so that Adam embodies and knows how to live as a son of God. 
So he's not going to create Eve separate. He wants Adam to enjoy with Eve the same union that he, the father, enjoys with the son and with the spirit. And so he puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib out of Adam, and makes Eve. Why? The very end of the chapter, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they will become what? What church? One flesh. Union. Union. God's design for your marriage is a union that mimics and mirrors that of his with the father and with the son. Now, God creates and God creates, doesn't he? Day one, God created and God saw that it was. Day two, God created and saw that it was. Day three, day four, day five. We get to day six, Adam and Eve are created and God saw that it was very good. Why the very? He created man in his image and he created woman out of the man. So that there would be a union that would be unbelievable between a man and between a woman. God's voice breaks the silence. And he says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I told you, commanded you not to eat? And here comes the blame game, right? Desire and blame. Look at Adam's response. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me. Newsflash, Adam. God didn't give her to be with you. God made her out of you. Please hear me, husbands, wives. It's not a sermon on marriage, but it has definite application. When you go after your husband, you're going after yourself. When you cut him down, You're cutting yourself down. When you go after your wife, husbands, you're going after yourself. When you cut her down, you're cutting you down. You're one. You're one. It's illogical. Illogical to tear each other apart. You are destroying yourself when you seek to destroy him or her. And so the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me (laughs) and I ate blame. Now there's several of you here who were in or are in my old Testament class. Along about day two or three, we talked about verse 15. Genesis 3.15, I'm going to give you an academic term, proto-evangelion, means the first good news. It is the first good news, evangelion, that word from which we get our word um, evangelistic, gospel, the first good news. What is it? You've got to follow this. Um, 
God then begins to speak to the serpent. No, he never curses Adam. He never curses Eve, but he does curse the serpent. He curses childbirth. He curses uh, work. He says, it's going to be hard to be married. You're going to struggle with one another. But notice what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So this is between Satan and the woman. Woman has a the on the front of it. A definite article. Who is that? It's Mary. I will put enmity between you and Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. He says to the serpent, you're going to bruise the heel of the offspring of Mary. So, so what does that mean? The serpent is confined to crawl now. And so to slither, he no longer can uh, walk as he used to walk. And so he's going to bite the heel of the offspring of the woman. The woman is Mary. Her offspring is Jesus. When does the serpent bite the heel of Jesus? On the cross. On the cross. Satan thought he had scored. He thought he had won. He thought it was over. On the cross, the union that existed between God the Father and God the Son appears to have been disbanded. Why? Jesus screamed from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The writer of 2 Corinthians 5 explains this for our sake. He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that moment that Jesus became sin for you and me, this union between God the Father and God the Son is violated by his being made sin. In that moment, Satan is striking his heel, thinking, I've won the day. God no longer loves the Son. The Son no longer loves the Father. I have divided. I have conquered. I have settled this score once and for all. But as the old preacher says, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? It may be Friday, it may be dark, the clouds may be rolling in, the cross, Jesus hangs suspended there on it, hope seems lost, it seems everything is done, the earth quakes, the earth trembles, the disciples run in fear, Mary cries for the loss of her seed, which has been bitten on the hill by, by Satan himself, but it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. Why? Because somewhere between Friday and Sunday, if you go read the letter that Peter, the one Jesus called Satan, by the way, if you go read the letter that Peter wrote talking about this, Peter said, Jesus, somewhere between Friday and Sunday, descended into hell, talked to Satan, took the keys to death, hell and the grave. Three days later on a Sunday morning, rose from the dead and is alive today. Amen. And by doing that. By doing that, he crushed Satan's head. That's Genesis 3.15. That's a whole sermon in and of itself, but it's after 12. Not going there. It may be Friday, but, but Sunday's coming. Reminds me of my pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, Dr. Lincoln. Dick Lincoln was his name. 
And so I'll date myself significantly here, but some of you used to read Hardy Boys books or Nancy Drew. Hardy Boys for me. Mysteries. Great books. I'd read those as a kid. So did Dr. Lincoln. And he, he said that um, he'd be reading one and it'd be bedtime. And he said, Mom would uh, holler up and say, Dick, it's time to go to bed. And he said, but the Hardy Boys were in trouble. You can't go to bed when the Hardy Boys are in trouble. He said, so I had a little flashlight. I'd take that flashlight out and I'd slide under my covers and I'd read And the Hardy Boys are in deep trouble. And he said, when my name went from Dick to Richard, I was in deep trouble. He said, then mom would say, Richard, I told you it's bedtime. And he said, I knew that I better close the book. He said, so what I do is turn to the very end and I'd read the end of the book. And there at the end of the book, discover that the Hardy Boys were safe and sound at home. So some of you are sitting here wondering if Jesus crushed his head, why does he seem to be working so hard today? Why the trouble I'm in? Why the battle I'm facing? Could I say something to you? If you go to the back of the book, Satan will be one day bound and cast into the bottomless pit. And for all of eternity, now this freaks me out, by the way, he'll fall and never arrive. I've read the back of the book and every time I read it, we win. Every single time we win. Let me pray for you. Lord, Father, God, strong, mighty. We're fallen, sinful people who are fraught with failure and pain and sin. Satan, who is real, Jesus, you called him the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, would love, as you said to your servant Peter, to have him that he may sift him like wheat. But Jesus said, Jesus, you said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And when, not if, when when you have returned, strengthen the brothers. I pray for those whose faith is faltering today that they would be reminded that though Satan may be nipping at their heels, you crushed his head on Sunday. Remind them, you are victorious. Convict of sin, 
comfort the afflicted. In Jesus' name, and God's people say, amen.